Hello and welcome to the Possibility Podcast with Sarah Knight. This is Session 6, Building Homes and Sinking Carbon with Sustainable Building Expert Chris Magwood. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Chris Magwood. Chris is an educator and researcher in sustainable design and construction. I had the pleasure of meeting Chris several times in attending different workshops and conferences on sustainable building. And I took one of his weekend courses on designing your own sustainable home and learned so much, was so inspired, and that's definitely on the vision board. Chris teaches, he writes, he's authored several books. He's just finishing up a master's at Trent University in opportunities for carbon capture and storage in building materials. So I'm really, really lucky to manage to get a little bit of this man's time uh, to talk to me today. So thank you so much for joining me, Chris. Yeah, it's a pleasure. In getting to know you over the last couple of years through attending a couple of your workshops and hearing you speak, I know that you are all about net zero building. So can you tell me why net zero? Well, I guess I would sort of uh, maybe add a word to that and, and, and think about it as net zero carbon building. Um, and the reason I'm so passionate about that is because I'm sort of taking the the you know news we're getting from the IPCC and and other scientists that you know the climate change problem is real and big and sort of imminent and so you know given that buildings are responsible for such a a huge portion of the emissions on the planet uh, that we cause directly um, you know it seems like there's a, a responsibility on behalf of anybody who builds buildings uh, or operates buildings or owns buildings to you know take that seriously and and uh, and work to try to bring the the emission footprint of those buildings you know down to zero or you know in the the, the best case scenario actually turning them into carbon sinks rather than uh, emitters so um, and I think there's a big distinction there that the notion of net zero building as it's kind of come to be defined is about making buildings that that can like produce as much energy as they use but that doesn't necessarily have a a carbon footprint notion attached to it so in other words um you know it, it's looking at making buildings more energy efficient which is great but if that energy efficient building is still meeting its heating and cooling <laughs> needs with natural gas or you know, other kind of, uh, or electricity from a, a coal-fired power plant or something like that, um, it's still going to be responsible for emissions. And also the materials that go into making those buildings or renovating those buildings have a large carbon footprint too. So you can build something that most people would now call a net zero building, and it's actually still incredibly uh, intensive in terms of its carbon footprint on the planet. So I, I would add that word carbon, you know, into that thing so that we're building net zero carbon buildings. Um, and, and then you're actually addressing the problem we have and not sort of thinking you're doing the right thing, but actually possibly exacerbating the problem by, you know, unintendedly causing more emissions than, than you're saving. So can you talk me through that a little bit? 
I mean, the difference between, which I think is what you're saying, between the embodied carbon of building materials and the ongoing operational carbon of running the building. Yeah, so that's one important distinction. So when you when you make a building, uh, you know, a whole bunch of processes happen to make those materials, many of which have a pretty high carbon footprint to them. So um, if you're building with cement, then that cement has a has a huge carbon footprint. If you're building with um, plastics or petrochemicals, they have a huge carbon footprint. And so in pursuit of making a building that is energy efficient, you may actually use more materials that have a, a pretty large carbon footprint. You might actually be responsible for more emissions in the in the material phase then you're actually going to save in the operation phase, especially if you look at, at us having to make a difference in a fairly small time window. So I think that the building community used to go, well, you know, over a hundred years, the sort of carbon investment in this energy efficient building will pay itself back and, you know, end up, you know, you'll end up with a more energy efficient building. And if it takes 20 or 30 years to kind of, work off that carbon debt a well, like that's just what we do. But now that we are looking at, you know, having only a decade or two to try to turn that around over the next decade, you know, up to, you know, 50, 60, 70% of your building's emissions footprint will be from the materials, not from the operations. And so, you know, I think it's really important to sort of bring that notion into the discussion and then also to think about you know, from the energy efficiency side, just being energy efficient doesn't necessarily have direct cor correlation to climate impact. So for example, here in Ontario, if you heat with electricity, which most people would go, oh, that's not a good idea, but our, our electricity grid is actually quite carbon free. It's actually better to have for the climate to have a less efficient house using electricity than a more efficient house burning natural gas. Um, and so just talking about energy efficiency isn't, isn't a, a direct stand-in for whether or not we're doing the right thing for the climate. There's those two aspects that, that you know, I think are, are both important to think about. Yeah. Perfect. And it was through, I mean, through meeting you and other people like you that got me thinking about all of these different components. And we just bought a house and we were delighted when we um, looked at the house that one of the features included electric heating, baseboard heating. And we can't believe, I mean, how how little we're having to heat the house for one thing and, and how much how much cleaner it is and how much better it feels. That varies by, by location, right? Like if you're in Saskatchewan or Alberta, that would be a terrible thing to be doing because you know when you're when you're reliant especially on a lot of coal for that electricity that the same house using the same amount of electricity in on two different grids will have a will be a completely different picture so you know the way we think about that in Ontario would be a, a very different way than you'd think about it in the northeastern U.S. or or sort of the west of Canada or even some of the maritime provinces that are really coal heavy. Yes, yes, thank you. So, Chris, just to go back for a little bit for a minute, the impact 
of residential and commercial buildings on the carbon footprint in Canada and the global carbon footprint. You mentioned that that's something that, that definitely matters and that we need to think about and that can have, the, have an impact in the short time period that we have if we start thinking about these things differently. So what is the emissions impact of residential buildings? I'm not sure I can pull out residential separately from, from everything else. The best estimates all seem to put um, building buildings both in their operation and in their material emissions at about 40% globally. So it's actually the single biggest piece of the, the sort of pie if you look at it divided up between sort of transportation and you know all of those different sectors buildings is the largest one and further than that breaks down to about somewhere around the 30% mark is is operational emissions and about 10% is is material manufacturing wow that's a huge number it is yeah what we should be aiming for, you know, on a per person level is something like two or three tons of, of carbon or carbon equivalent a year where we're at in Canada and North America is like 15 to 20, you know, ridiculous what's actually sustainable. So if, you know, on average, if somebody just goes and builds an average home, you know, they buy a plot of land, just the average house, average building materials, what's the carbon footprint of that home? Well, on the on the building construction side, I'm actually looking at the numbers uh, from my from my research. Somewhere, sort of between like 30 and 60 tons for a 2,000 square foot house um, is the emissions associated just with making the building in the first place. So, if you're you know thinking yes, we should only be doing two tons per household per year, if your if your house was 60 tons, that's the next. 30 years of your carbon budget already blown before you set foot in the house and move your furniture in. So, you know, that's why that part um, has been such a, a big focus of mine lately is, is in general, the whole building industry and builders and designers have not paid attention to that number. And, you know, as it turns out, that number is, it's really significant. And if you um, build try to build say a really you know energy efficient passive house level building and you use lots of concrete and foam to do that like that can rise to like 75 tons and so you've you've sort of added maybe 20 or 30 tons more in your additional insulation materials that again like you're you're going to have a very hard time paying that back through the actual savings over you know It'll, it'll take decades before the amount you've saved on your operational footprint comes anywhere close to, to making up what you've sort of spent up front. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty kind of passionate about, you know, making sure that that, that, that part of the equation uh, comes more front and center for people. And then the kind of the flip side of that and the part that's really exciting is that if we can switch to more sort of renewable plant-based materials, especially for insulation, that same house can be a net store of 20 to 30 tons of carbon emissions. So you can actually flip the building in its construction from being responsible for, you know, 30 to 70 tons to storing 20 to 30 tons in its materials. So it's actually a, a climate drawdown as opposed to, uh, an emissions source 
And then if you're, if you're doing that and say you're living in a place where your grid is dirty or you have to use natural gas, you've actually bought yourself 10 or 50 years of continuing those emissions because you can't do anything about them because you don't have a clean grid option. But if you can build a house that's storing 20 or 30 tons, you know, you won't be a net emitter for, you know, five years, eight years, something like that, while you can advocate for and work towards getting your jurisdiction on to cleaner energy. So I think, you know, as a, as a climate strategy, it makes a lot of sense for the building industry to start, you know, really thinking about if we can make buildings that are net carbon storers up front. I mean, A, it's a huge potential drawdown for, uh, for the global climate and it buys us the time to make those sort of bigger energy shifts that, that are going to be required um, without sort of additional overall emissions happening. Yeah, and Chris, I mean, that sounds like a revolutionary kind of thought that we can go from buildings not just as these massive sources of carbon emissions, but actually as stores for carbon. Like, talk me through this. What are the, what are the materials and the, the systems that make that possible? Well, um, you know, it's, it's interesting as you sort of look at the field of, um, you know, climate change mitigation research, there's so much time and money being poured into figuring out how to build machines that will suck, you know, CO2 out of the air and, and, and change that into like a solid form of carbon that we can either then stick in the ground or use as aggregate or something like that. But plants, that's what plants do. <laughs> they, they draw that CO2 out of the atmosphere and create oxygen and often food while they do that. And, uh, and so the, for the most part, the, the materials that I'm talking about that sort of can bring you into the sort of net storage line are um, agricultural residues. So things like straw stems, hemp stems, um, you know, cork uh, used like recycled newspaper, uh, wood waste, um, uh, fabric, clothing waste, those sorts of things. So that's all all of those materials are made from carbon that was in the atmosphere last year. You know, we grow all these grain crops, they grow a little tiny seed head on top and then a stem. We harvest the seed head and we either burn the stems or let them rot. So all of the carbon in that stem goes back into the atmosphere, but we actually, there's enough grain straw grown globally that it annually sequesters more carbon than all of our transportation emissions but we just don't do anything with it like we we sort of let that go we don't capitalize on that opportunity to bundle that up and take it out of circulation by putting it into a building say um, but that there's this like massive opportunity to um, take things that are already growing already been grown and just put the carbon that's in them away for a long time. Yeah, can you repeat that as much? So as the global emissions from the transportation sector, we grow enough straw every year to draw that equivalent amount of carbon out of the atmosphere? Yeah, it all, so it does it already. Like we, we, we plant these crops and we grow them um, and they are literally pulling that much carbon out of the atmosphere, but 
you know, for the almost the entire amount of that grain straw ends up back in the atmosphere within, you know, if it's burned immediately or if it's left to molder two years or three years or five years, but it, it's all going back to the atmosphere. And so, you know, there's a, a pretty big opportunity to grab that while it's already harvested <laughs> um, and, and do something useful with it, like make a net zero energy building. And, and you're sort of, you know, tackling two problems simultaneously. So can you tell me a little bit about what a sustainable home looks like that uses these materials? Where do these materials go and how are they used? For the most part, the, 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 these plant-based materials are, are insulation materials. So wall insulation, roof insulation, um, you know, sustainably harvested wood has similar properties. It's a bit different in that, you know, the, the grain crops grow annually. So the carbon they're pulling out of the atmosphere is now, whereas a tree that you harvest, it's been slowly doing that pulling of CO2 for a bunch of decades. And when you cut that tree down, it'll take another tree a bunch of decades to, you know, continue to, uh, to maintain that, that level of, of carbon storage. Um, but, but, you know, responsibly harvested wood uh, can be that. So, um, yeah, I mean, from the outside, the homes don't really look any different than, than any other home. It's really just sort of um, taking advantage of the fact that, that these egg wastes also have great little air pockets in them, which is all you need for insulation. And so, you know, our, our typical sources for insulation are mineral-based, so fiberglass or rock wool, where the process is you have to heat up either glass or rocks until they melt and then spin them into fibers. So there's this huge, that's where that embodied carbon footprint comes from. You have to expend a huge amount of energy to make an insulation that you're hoping will save you energy. But, you know, the, the climate doesn't care if those emissions came from making your insulation or from your house being less insulated you know, they, they're the same emissions. Um, so if we can replace materials like that or materials like foam insulation, which has a vastly higher carbon footprint than even the, the mineral-based ones um, with plants that are actually made from carbon, then it's kind of like just this really straightforward material substitution that is not that hard to do. <laughs> I mean, you know, people have been doing building with things, you know, like straw and hemp for a long time. Um, and in Europe now, there are some companies that, that make prefabricated components and, you know, it's, it's not, it's not like a major technological leap to figure out how to do this. Like the, the knowledge base to do it is already there. Um, the oldest straw bale homes are over a hundred years old now. Everything's working just fine the the oldest of sort of like the modern straw bale homes are hitting the 20 and 30 year mark and they're doing just fine. So, you know, like we know it's not a leap into sort of unproven technology to, uh, to be able to do this. 
Right. So actually, I mean, the question I wanted to ask you, you've answered already, I think. In, in Europe, there are companies that are producing um, prefabricated materials for the mass market. I guess maybe you could go to their equivalent of Home Depot. But, you know, what about here? How do you get your hands on these materials here? Well, that's, I mean, the issue with, with sort of making this a, a more common practice is that if you want to build, say, a straw bale house or a hemp insulated home or something like that here now you as the homeowner or as the builder have to go and find that material so I've got to go find a farmer get in touch with them make sure they have the material you know make sure it's it meets all the specifications that I need Um, so it's sort of this additional step that even though the material itself is actually quite a bit less expensive than what I would go to the big box store to get it adds a whole bunch of time and effort, which then equates into cost to, you know, to have to source it. But it's not that big a leap to imagine that these things could be turned into building products. That certainly is a barrier for someone that is thinking about um, maybe pursuing this this avenue. I mean, right there, you add that layer of complication. Oh my gosh, I have to figure this out myself so how then is building how how is how are these materials embraced in terms of kind of a code and a planning perspective does it add complications there in Canada it can um about three or four years ago in the U.S. um straw bale building in particular got added to their residential building code so that opened up a, a, a much easier pathway in the U.S. And, and to a large degree that had a big impact up here because even though our codes don't directly recognize it like the U.S. ones do, it's, it's a much more compelling case for an Ontario building inspector to see that what we're talking about is something that the entire U.S. building code apparatus has studied, looked at, and decided is you know, clearly okay and included it in their codes. So that goes a long way to, you know, reassuring people, even though it's not directly recognized here. Um, but one of the one of the the really, I think maybe best things that came out of the the research I did is that there kind of is a a conventional pathway to a building that's not quite a carbon store, but it's also not an emitter. Like you can make a building that turns out to have pretty much a zero carbon footprint for its materials. Um, by simply switching to cellulose insulation, which is recycled newspapers, um, and a, a material called wood fiberboard, uh, which is like an exterior um, insulated sheathing product. And those two things together will actually bring the footprint of most residential buildings to at or close to zero. Depends what other materials you're using, but um you know in the in the models that i've been working with that just those two substitutions and those are code approved can get them at the store you know doesn't change the process for a a builder on site like it's they're just sort of direct material substitutions but they're not there's nothing onerous about them can bring a, a sort of conventional building to having pretty close to a zero footprint so to me it's really encouraging that it's not like we have to make this huge leap from really, really bad to really, really good. There's, there's already kind of a, uh, a middle pathway that, that's open and, and accessible to anybody who wants to use it. 
Yes, but I mean, people just don't don't realize, you know, the the craze over the the last few years of super insulating your home, um, yeah, had me alarmed. I guess for the reasons that we've talked about, because of I was aware of the carbon footprint of some of those some of those materials, and the time periods that we're talking about. We need. Um, we need to be making progress now. So, I mean, in terms of what you're, this is really important for people to realize that there are some materials that at least aren't going to create more harm that are readily available right now. And it's, it is something that's, you know, I mean, even, even, you know, people like me and my colleagues, it, it's only in the last few years that, that we've actually started using these numbers and, and thinking about it and, and modeling these things out and sort of having this realization that a figuring out how to actually come up with realistic numbers for all of these scenarios and know that they're good sort of solid numbers, not guesses. Um, but then also seeing, yeah, like what, what differences, you know, some of these material substitutions do and don't make. And so I think I would hope that, you know, now that that's starting to be, available and that people can sort of see some of this data that that it'll start to have an effect on on practice. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. So Chris, apart from the building materials, can you tell me where we can start thinking a little bit more sensibly in regards to some of the mechanical systems in a home? Yeah, we've been um, designing with a lot of um, air source heat pumps lately. So these are the cold climate heat pumps, which have only sort of been on the market the last, you know, eight or 10 years. Um, but they're really interesting in that they, for every sort of one unit of electricity that you put into making the heat pump work, you get sort of between, depends on the weather and the unit, but like two to four units of heat um, back out of that unit. Um, they're, they're essentially like your refrigerator or your air conditioner, but um, they're designed to essentially extract heat out of the air, even when it's minus 20 outside. Um, and so that's, you know, because in Ontario, our electricity grid is quite clean. And because you're actually only using a third of the electricity that you would need to make the heat compared to if you were just using electric baseboards, say, um, it's an incredibly efficient way of of sort of providing the heat for the house and, and especially in Ontario, a very low carbon footprint sort of way of, of, um, of providing that kind of conditioning. So these systems replace a furnace? Yeah. And there's various ways um, they can sort of use the existing ductwork of a furnace. So they can be a, a forced air system. Uh, they can make hot water if you're doing like a, a hydronic system um, or they can have sort of, they're called mini splits, but like a, an actual just like unit that sticks onto the wall in a room that, that blows conditioned air in. So there's different ways of setting them up, but the, the basic technology is the, the same for all three. Wow. But for somebody that's renovating, this is, you know, if you have a furnace and you have duct work, it's the, the, the system is almost ready made for it. Yeah, it's kind of a no brainer. And the, the systems don't really cost any more than a new furnace. Um, and their, their, um, you know, their, their cost of operation over the long term is going to be way, way, way lower because they use electricity so efficiently. 
Yeah. And so tell me, what are some of the other knock-on benefits of building a home like this, apart from the incredible savings for the planet? I guess there's, there's a bunch of them. One is, you know, what you're pointing at is, is that a lot of these materials are healthier. Like there, there's a lot less um, chemicals in them to make them what they are. Uh, and so for the most part, they're sort of like free of off-gassing um, chemicals, uh, VOCs, those sorts of things. So yeah, I mean, as, as materials, they're, they're healthier for us. Um, as processes, you know, as their sort of impact on the ecosystem, like the materials that have a really high carbon footprint also tend to have you know, a high level of chemical content, waste, you know, water use, like there's a whole bunch of um, sort of ecosystem parameters that that tend to be much better for the the plant-based materials. Um, And then we don't tend to think about this, but at the end of the building's lifespan, the plant-based materials are compostable again. Um, Or if we're starting to you know, make biochar and create heat and power from that combustion, you know, they're, they're good for that. Whereas, you know, a piece of fiberglass, it's great. It's not that dangerous for you in your walls, but at some point it comes out of your walls and, you know, becomes something that is going to be pervasive in the environment for a very, very long time. And, um, you know, that's true of, of the mineral based things and the, the, the petrochemical based things. So, I think it sort of has all of those, those effects. It's better for us personally. It's better for the planet in ways other than the climate. And it's sort of not generating uh, a sort of waste problem for, for future generations. Yeah, thank you. You know, that's so important what you just said too, because we see ourselves as so separate from the environment. And I think people are starting to realize that we are a lot less separate from it than we would like to believe that we are. And the the impacts of the byproducts of these processes and where they end up in our ecosystem and what does that mean? If it ends up in our if it ends up in our water and our soil and our air, it's gonna end up in us. And so starting to understand that we're a lot more connected to the environment around us is um, really important moving forward. And it's, it's, you know, I guess it's measured in some places where there are major health impacts of environmental, you know, disasters. But otherwise, it's kind of immeasurable. We don't see how, these, how this toxic load builds up in our systems um, as we get it through the air that we breathe and the water that we drink and so on. So that's such an important point. Thank you. So in doing your research for your master's, you know, opportunities for embracing all of this, um, I presume that you probably had to look around the world and go, okay, well, who's doing what and where? And so where is, where, where are people embracing these opportunities? Are there countries that have managed to kind of bring this in and that they're really, really seizing uh, these technologies? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, the European countries are are um, kind of at the forefront of all of this. Um, you know, they, they're making much more energy efficient buildings than we are here in North America. And they are um, starting to pay a lot more attention to, to the sort of like carbon uh, footprint of the materials. Um, the, the Netherlands is the first country where you actually have to be below a certain 
um, carbon footprint threshold in your materials. So it's now part of applying for a building permit there that you have to show the carbon footprint. And if you're above the line, you got to go back and figure out how to get below their line. And France and Germany and England are all um, sort of on that path as well. So right now they're collecting. You have to you have to submit that data with your building permit, but there's no threshold yet, but they're, they're collecting that data so that they can figure out what a reasonable threshold to make is. So, you know, there are places where this is really starting to, to happen. And it's, it's, you know, given that, especially a country like Canada, which is sort of a world's leading producer of both sort of grain and agricultural products and forest products, it's, it seems kind of funny that the Europeans who don't have a lot of forests and have much smaller amounts of food being grown are the leaders in, in sort of like making actual manufacturing opportunities out of that, that kind of stuff. Like there are, there's a company in Austria that is turning straw, chopping straw into a cellulose like insulation that gets blown into your wall. Um, there are the, prefab straw bale building companies. There are hempcrete companies doing really interesting things with prefab and spray and installations and things like that. So, you know, we have every opportunity in the world, you know, here in this country to really take advantage of that. And, and to date we haven't, but you know, there's, there are a lot of great precedents. We can just sort of turn to Europe and see like, okay, like people have already figured out how to do this. We just need to, kind of follow what they're already doing and, and start implementing some of that here. And and so tell me, so the is does this require more entrepreneurs to seize this opportunity or is it that people are seizing it, but just the pathways to actually bring this into kind of mass production scale aren't there? What's what are the what are the barriers there? Yeah, well I think you know there are some big barriers in in trying to bring a new building product uh, to introduce a new building product in North America, like the, the, the thresholds that you have to cross to, um, you know, do all the things that get you sort of recognized in the building code and to, um, develop, you know, your system and how you train people to use it and install it and your, you know, warranties and, you know, all of that kind of stuff that it's a, it's a pretty high threshold to get into, and it's a very conservative industry. Like, you know, if you, if you come up with a better t-shirt, you know, any consumer can decide, oh yeah, like I'll put my 20 bucks there as opposed to the other t-shirt. But with buildings, you know, the, the investments are really big and they're typically not driven by the consumer. They're driven by building developers and building developers are driven by, <laughs> you know, what's the, the, the quickest and easiest and cheapest way I can build this building to maximize my return. And then we get to buy the buildings that they make based on those criteria. So it's like, it's a, you know, in order to make a, a sort of material shift, you really have to have those big players on board and they don't jump on board easily. And for good reasons from their business model, but um, you know, it's not unlike so many other things, it's not a consumer driven change. You know, we can't sort of, you know, it's not going to come 
from the choices individuals make because individuals very, very rarely choose what their buildings are made from. Yeah. So look, Chris, I mean, you're out there, you're, you're doing this research, you've, you're out there building, you're in the field, you're going to conferences and workshops, you're talking to people, you know, as you said earlier on, you know, the IPCC have told us we've got like a decade or two to, to figure this out, to seriously change the way that we're living, every aspect of how we're living, to dramatically reduce our carbon emissions in this particular aspect, you know, in North America, where are we at? Do we have, you know, is there a hope of this actually being embraced in the time frame that we need it? Well, I don't know, but I, I am really heartened by the fact that, you know, everywhere that I go now, people in the building industry, including people who I would never have imagined caring or thinking about this, are caring about it and thinking about it. Like, I don't think... Um, you know, when I'm at a conference and there are either manufacturers or, or representatives of um, manufacturers associations, they're not in the room going, oh, this doesn't matter, you know, we don't care, climate change isn't real. They're, they're, they're going like, okay, like we get this, you know, we know we need to do something. And I think everybody's kind of at that point in the, in the sort of wider industry of like, recognizing that something needs to happen and being very unsure what that something is. Um, so, you know, I feel like what I would like to do is sort of take this message that, that the buildings in the material phase itself have the ability to be the difference that that industry needs to make. And I think, you know, my hope is that, that some of the major material manufacturers they're the ones with the, the R&D budgets and the, and the sort of clout in the industry to, you know, to make this change happen quickly. Like there are small scale entrepreneurs doing really cool things, but the length of time it takes a startup to go from making three houses a year to being in every Home Depot in North America is long. But, you know, some of the really major manufacturers, uh, the big lumber companies, they've got the ability to make this happen in a very short amount of time and the credibility with the designers and the builders that if, you know, such and such a company who's, who's, you know, other products you've used for the last 20 years is suddenly making, you know, uh, straw based insulation or, you know, some other, some other great carbon storing material, people will, will go to that very quickly. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's going to take both the kind of innovators doing their thing and sort of pushing, but I think it's going to take some of the, the big manufacturers going like, okay, you know, from a strictly business point of view, if we kind of like own the solution to climate change, that puts us in a good position rather than sort of like worrying about those ideas as competition. I think, you know, I would hope that some of them will start to see it as, as a way to, as a great business model. Wonderful. And very hopeful as you, that they're, that they're listening, that they're paying attention. Yeah, it is. Cause it, it, you know, for, I've been doing this 25 years and for 20 of those, I felt like a very kooky outsider <laughs> talking about this stuff, but, but suddenly I'm not. And suddenly, you know, I'm being asked by people like that to come and, and talk and, and people are, are 
taking it seriously. Like I think the, the, the climate change concern is, it's deep. And I think, you know, people are looking for solutions. Also not wanting to upset their entire, you know, livelihood and business model. So it's, you know, the solutions have to be able to, to do both of those things, like reduce the carbon footprint, but also be a viable option for companies that employ, you know, thousands of people and, you know, want to keep doing that. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for your vision and your dedication. That's incredible. So tell me for um, people that don't want to wait until this stuff becomes available in Home Depot that are maybe in the position of building a home themselves now or renovating, how can people learn more from you? Um, well, there, there, you know, there are the various courses we have at the Endeavor Center. So we've got a, a sort of list of those uh, on our website. Um, and my own website, the chrismagwood.ca one, is where I'm sort of putting all of the, the research that I'm doing around, you know, the carbon-based materials. Um, and I think, you know, in general, for people in Ontario, if you can, if you can, if you are insulating, if you could think about using cellulose, and if you are putting an exterior insulation board on your house, if it can be wood fiber, you will have made as big a difference as it's possible to make at this point, and you won't have spent any more money doing it. So, you know, if there, and, and thirdly, if you can, if you are building or renovating, if you can, off natural gas and get onto a, a heat pump, like an electric air source heat pump. Those are the three big ticket items. Like you, you will make such a big difference by doing those three things that don't worry about the rest, you know, unless you're passionate about, you know, figuring out, you know, all the, the nitty gritty of every material and stuff. But if you can do those three things, cellulose, wood fiber board and air source heat pumps, that's, you know, that would be probably the single biggest climate change action that, that you could take maybe other than giving up your car. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. So Chris, to hit it home, can you repeat those? It's using cellulose insulation, um, which can be dense packed into walls or, or just blown into attics. Um, wood fiber board. If you're sort of cladding your house in insulation, sort of doing an insulation wrap and uh, a move to an electric air source heat pump as your sort of heating and cooling system. Super. So look, Chris, thank you so much. I've been, I uh, will probably see you at the Endeavor Center soon. I have a, a, a dream for the last couple of years to take two months off of work and do your intensive um, sustainable home design and construction course. That looks fantastic. So for anyone out there that's actually interested in getting their hands dirty and learning how to do this stuff yourself, the Endeavor Center has a fantastic intensive course. You actually get to help build a home. Is that right, Chris? Yeah. Yeah. From, yeah, from start to finish, the, we've got a four-month course and a one-month course that both sort of do a, a start to finish thing great okay so it's four months off of work that i need to find okay i need to, to up my window so we've got a, a one month intensive in august and uh, the four month one starts uh next monday so it's probably a bit too late <laughs> joining this year uh but yeah the one month is great it's it's the month of august and 
and we do, yeah, we're building an addition on a house with all natural carbon storing materials. Chris, thank you so, so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're doing really great things and the education programs that you offer through the Endeavor Center, as well as everything else that you do there for people that just want to come and work with you and get some help with their design and construction for their sustainable home, the way that you teach people and empower people is really quite wonderful. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. And thank you for listening. And until next time, I hope this podcast has left you feeling enlightened, inspired, and a little bit more full of the possibility of possibilities.